And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon the case may be where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live, of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn, when all the things we used to talk about in the wee hours of the morning as we were twittering back and forth to Art Bell and George and all the other imitators now have kind of... uh, kind of soaked into the consciousness of the entire planet 24-7. If anybody tries to tell you that this time is just normal, that things are just going along the way they've always been going along, that the news you see and the rumors and the Twitter accounts and the, you know, uh, Twilights and the, I forget all the different, you know, private blogs and chats that are out there. If they try to tell you that's all normal, no, it is not. We are, we are in a time of extraordinary change. What Art uh, kind of, you know, very euphemistically called some years ago, the quickening. Meaning, I believe, if I remember how he defined it, that things would happen faster and faster. But I don't think that he really got a handle on the, the tenor and the tone and the quality of things changing so radically. I mean, have you heard of this professor at some Florida university? I I hope it's not Florida State, who has actually proposed a revision of the Constitution where the First and Second Amendment are radically abridged and freedom of the press is curtailed. I mean, people are nuts out there. They're nuts. They're absolutely nuts. And I'm, you know of the opinion that a lot of it is coming from, shall we say, external sources. And that's a very long conversation. Um, Sometime after Christmas, I think it might work out for uh, New Year's night. Um, We're going to, I believe, have a show about these changes based on some very interesting interpretation of the Mayan calendar, the Mayan long count and uh, Mayan elders. And um, that's going to be really intriguing. I just kind of got wind of this this afternoon, and I've set in motion uh, uh, some procedures to try to get to this person, to get him on the show, someone who's done a lot of very interesting work. And I I liked uh, what I read, so we will see if, in fact, uh, that can take place. I I will obviously let you know as we get uh, closer, like by next weekend, we should know. Tonight, we have a very special guest, someone that I've wanted to talk to about a whole bunch of this stuff that we're currently immersed in um, for quite some time, and the schedule's all worked out, and he is safely ensconced in his Brooklyn uh, apartment, and um, we will be talking to him momentarily, but I want to start, as we start every evening, uh, with some news. First of all, if you are new to the show, uh, you want to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. That's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. And when you click on that, you will find a banner at the top of the page. Tonight's banner says, Web Space Telescope, the coming astrophysical slash ET revolution. And my guest there, Dr. Greg Matloff. Um, we'll get to Greg momentarily, but let's. Uh, when, when you get to that page, click on that banner that will take you to the guest page. Click on My Items. Richard under there. That takes you to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one, we're leading again tonight with La Palma. The good news is uh, 
that La Palma appears to be calming down as of this afternoon. Um, this situation appears to be calming. In fact, uh, for three days, quoting from the article, no eruptive activity has taken place. The likelihood that the eruption is actually over is clearly increasing. The cone, that's the volcano itself, only shows mild degassing and no lava flows are active anymore. Official confirmation when the eruption is declared over will likely need to wait a bit longer. Some doubt remains as to the significance of the continuing earthquake activity, although of low energy and overall on a decreasing trend, it remains significant and could indicate that magma at depth is still able to pressurize and fracture rocks and create intrusions that might eventually allow it to rise further. However, this is far from certain. It could also be adjustments of the system triggered by the massive shifts of masses that has occurred during the eruption. In the latter case, the quake should slowly die out, and during the past 24 hours, there were three quakes of magnitude 3.3, 3.5, at about 35 to 36 kilometers depth, in addition to many smaller quakes uh, at, uh, at a higher uh, uh, altitude, you know, uh, closer to the, to the ground level. Anyway, that's good news, because as you know, the uh, worst-case scenario for La Palma is really a bad hair day, so we do not want that to happen. Again, put this uh, link on your phone, pay attention to alerts. If there's major earthquake activity, you want to have a go bag packed and you want to leave Dodge, particularly if you're along the oceans rimming the North Atlantic Basin or even in uh, the Caribbean or in South America because the worst case scenario for La Palma, applicable to the 2001 geophysical model which looked at this, um, is not good. And fortunately, according to these trend curves, the probability is decreasing. Item number two. Um, tonight, just before airtime, about two hours ago, the Japanese billionaire, the uh, space tourist, the companion and colleague and cohort of Elon Musk, who was going to take eight people around the moon in one of these Starship spacecraft that... Uh, Musk is busily building there along the Gulf Coast in Texas, Yusaku Maezawa and his co-pilot and the Russian commander of the mission returned in a Soyuz safely to Kazakhstan, the, the, uh, the plateau, the plains of Kazakhstan, um, uh, about two hours ago this evening. That's important because uh, Maezawa had to kind of get some space time under his belt to be part of the next extraordinary adventure, which is to go in a spacecraft in the Starship, Musk's amazing uh, next generation uh, human spacecraft, on a journey in 2023. I mean, that's just, you know, like months away, around the moon. And of course, that's important and interesting and critical and every other superlative I can think of tonight to say, because, of course, last night, as you know, as part of our uh, Oumuamua uh, test experiment series before the big events next weekend, Christmas weekend, 
we broadcast about 15 minutes of coded information to the moon. And we got answers. And as uh, David Sarita outlined last night, uh, two sets of those answered involved A, the speed of light, which is kind of like the ET saying, oh, you slowpokes, you guys, you're, you're limiting your transmissions to the speed of light? Oh, isn't that droll? Isn't that cute? Isn't that fun? Because obviously, uh, and that's a very long discussion that we've had on previous weeks, so we will not go into it in depth tonight. Um, that's not the final speed limits of the universe, uh, Einstein obsessives notwithstanding. I mean, Michelson Morley did not say there is no ether. Um, and it has been incredibly misinterpreted over the years by the mainstream. My opinion is this is by design, this is deliberate, because a, uh, a different set of physics opened up such doorways that certain political structures do not want that kind of freedom. And if you think that science can be abrogated, yeah, all you do is control the journals, and that controls what gets published. And if it isn't published in a journal, it doesn't exist for 99.99% of the mainstream. Fortunately, the guy we're going to talk to tonight, my friend Greg uh, Matloff, is not part of that establishment. He's a real scientist. He can think outside the box. He has some extraordinarily original and innovative ideas about consciousness in the galaxy, in the universe, and we're going to get to those. In fact, we're going to talk about this extraordinary revolution that's going to be ushered in in about six months with the cross fingers, cross toes, cross everything, successful launch of the James Webb Space Telescope on Christmas Eve. And um, I'm really feeling very good about this. And that, of course, has zero scientific merit. It's just that there's so much invested in Webb, and they've spent so many dollars, like $9 billion over budget to make sure that a myriad of little latches and springs and relays and bearings and all the incredibly complicated machinery required to remotely, like one and a half million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun at the L2 point, all that remote control computerized operation to unfold and lock the mirror into place, which is really an assemblage of, I think it's 18 hexagonal mirrors that all have to fit together to kind of create this enormous 21-foot-wide primary mirror for the telescope. It's not one big, you know, parabolic thing of glass. It's 18 separate hexagons that all fit into place, and then they're tweaked with little motors, and lasers are looking, and fine-guide sensors are monitoring diffraction patterns. And, I mean, this is why it's going to take them six months to tweak and tune and tickle like with a feather, that's a metaphor, uh, the the um, precision that is needed to turn this into the most extraordinary, most powerful scientific instrument, I know physicists with CERN are unhappy at that phrase, that has ever been created by humankind. So tonight with my friend Greg, we're going to go through the extraordinary ways in which James Webb, the telescope, can revolutionize an already revolutionized landscape in space, in the cosmos, in astrophysics, because of Hubble, which has lasted so much longer because of the ability of astronauts to visit it. I mean, 
there's no real practical way with the current state of the art of spaceflight to get to Hubble and fix anything unless you want to invoke, um, you know, specters of the secret space program. But we won't go there tonight. So Hubble will be on its own. It will take them about six months to get it all tuned up, aligned precisely, carefully, redundantly, and then the fun begins. So without further ado, let me introduce the guy to you tonight who is going to take us through this extraordinary journey as to what Webb might unfold in terms of some of the major outstanding mysteries of uh, astrophysics and astronomy. Not, of course, uh, withstanding the completely unknown bonkers, out-of-the-box surprises that the history of astronomy has shown us that every major step forward in capability or size or or function of major observatories has brought within the ken of human spirit and consciousness. In other words, there will be surprises. Some of them we're anticipating, and some of them will be totally off the wall, and there will be incredible food fights over are they real, are they, you know, impressions from long-standing prejudices, or have we entered a really interesting new paradigm? I'm betting on the latter. Dr. Gregory L. Matloff, Emeritus Associate and Adjunct Associate Professor of Physics at New York City College of Technology, has coordinated the astronomy program at that institution, has consulted for the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, is a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, is a Hayden Associate at the American Museum of Natural History, ah, my old stomping grounds, and is a corresponding member of the International Academy of Astronautics. Greg pioneering research in solar sail technology has been utilized by NASA in plans for extrasolar probes and in consideration of technologies to divert Earth-threatening asteroids. Uh, I guess we're going to talk about the DART mission tonight. He served as a guest professor at the University of Siena in Italy in 1994, has chaired many technical sessions, and was honored by NYCCT as scholar on campus during the 2008-2009 to academic year. In 1998, Greg was a winner of a SETI competition sponsored by the National Academy of Discovery Science. He has authored or co-authored more than 100 research papers and nine books, which have been cited about 400 times in the literature. One of those books, The Starflight Handbook, uh, published by Wiley in New York in 89, was co-authored with MIT science writer Dr. Eugene Mail. I've got that book, and Gene was a dear friend of mine, my gosh, and helped establish interstellar propulsion studies as a subdivision of applied physics. Anyway, there's a lot more you can read on the other side of midnight, so just scroll down to his bio. Without further ado, Greg, come on down. Good, good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> See, that fits all. One, one size of that fits all, yeah. Well, you're actually right, snuggled uh, up there in, in, in Brooklyn, I believe, right? Right, right it's shortly after midnight, which is, is proper for beyond midnight. And I just should update that I also, I've been now cited more than 800 times, because that's a, an older edition, my, I'm an adjunct and emeritus full professor, and I also am an advisor to Breakthrough Starshot. So 
that's where I know Avi Loeb, who I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> I'm uh, sure. I'm yeah. sure we will. Yes. So, yeah. So you know. That's okay. A okay. Bit of an update. Dealer's it's choice. Great to be here. Dealer's choice. Where do you want to begin? We have such an incredible fertile field. We only got three hours. So where would you like to begin? Well, we could begin with a little review of, I guess, I could, we could sort of talk a little bit about the history of observational astronomy and how every little thing has created a major revolution in human thought. Yeah, I think I think the back. lawyers I think the lawyers call this laying foundation, and that's probably a great place because a lot of our listeners are not astronomers. Some of them are amateur astronomers, but giving people the foundation to know why Webb is such a potential huge revolution, I think it's very important. So let let us begin there. Okay, what well, one thing I always do with my students, be it in person where I used to have students, or more recently online with a Zoom derivative called Blackboard, where I have students in their homes, of course, because of COVID, if you talk about Galileo Galilei, Galileo in the late 17th, early six, early, when late, yeah, I guess around 1600, uh, is an amazing figure in astronomy. He learned, first of all, early on to get around the establishment, which the global establishment, at least in the West then, was the Roman Catholic Church. And he realized, unless he was very, very careful, he was going to end up in a very hot place. And I don't mean hell. Mm. I mean burned, burned as Giordano Bruno had been yeah. burned at a stake in Rome. And he was, what he did, he learned before anything else with astronomy, that there was an obscure optical firm in, I believe, in Amsterdam. And somebody there had discovered by putting two appropriately ground lenses, one in front of the other, my God, it gave you a magnified image. So he realized what he could do with this. But before he did anything astronomical, he did something for the military-industrial complex. Of course, of course. In the city-state of Venice. And he had this validated. There is a, oh, a painting somewhere, and I think Titian did it, but it might be one of the other old masters, of Galileo presenting a spyglass to the Venetian Navy and basically saying, you'll be able to see the Ottoman Turks, your arch enemies, before they see you. And there was about to be a, a battle. It was one every generation for control of the Mediterranean. And uh, the Christian armies blew the Ottomans out of the water. And for this, Galileo became a hero of Christendom. And he was often running. He knew about the Copernican theory. And the Copernican theory is not really... I mean, Copernicus develops it. He's considered in the, in the books to be the originator of the heliocentric or sun-centered solar system. He's not the originator. It goes back to Greek times, probably at least 200, 300 BC. <coughs> Excuse me. And what he does is he says, okay, maybe I can validate some of this. He looks at the moon 
And he points out in his publications that Aristotle and others said the moon is a perfectly flat surface. It reflects the earth. But if it's so flat, why does it have craters, mountains, flat, relatively flat areas, which are called, which he called mare or seas. We now know from Apollo and other, other explorations that they are extinct, very large lava flows. What, you know, so that was one thing. Then he looks at the planet Venus, and he notices that Venus has, has phases. And because of that, you know, that supports heliocentric thinking. Then he looks at Jupiter, and he sees that Jupiter has four, four satellites, large satellites we call today, he called them small satellites. And the smallest of them is about the size of our moon. The biggest is bigger than the planet Mercury. So they're not small satellites. But they demonstrated that Jupiter is like a miniature solar system. He publishes all of this knowing he's going to get in trouble. But he also realizes anybody could put two lenses together and see this. So he has his trouble with the Pope. He recants, but it's too late for the prevailing worldview because too many people can go out, get two lenses. People are grinding lenses, of course, for use in spectacles. You can get these all over the place then. Put them together, put them in a tube, and view what's going on in the heavens. And uh, it's an amazing thing. And since then, Every time there's been an advance in telescope technology, it has brought in marvelous things. What happens, or the generation after him, Isaac Newton, comes up with the concept of a reflecting telescope. You can probably, he reasons that you can do everything with an appropriately curved mirror that you can, you can do with a series of lenses and you can reduce chromatic or optical effects. And this leads essentially after that or so to the Herschel family who really begin the systematic um, observation of deep sky objects and recording what they are. They, they don't know what they are yet, but they record their positions, how they look in the fairly large telescopes, I believe, I believe their largest was 48 and 72 inches aperture, which is pretty good. Um, so, you know, this was a major achievement. And then people realize, you know, as photography, astrophotography is developing after the U.S. Civil War, what happens if you can somehow attach a camera to a telescope? It would be hard to do that to Herschel's telescope because with Newtonian reflectors, the eyepiece is on the side. You can view through it, but to hang a large camera from it would be very difficult. <laughs> but shortly after Newton, there was an obscure Dominican monk. His name is Cassegrain. And he said, one scientific paper this guy published, and he basically said, what if we could grind a secondary mirror a reflecting telescope that had curvature to it. Then we could bounce the light back to a hole in the primary mirror and we could view it. The eyepiece could be in the back of the telescope. You could view much more conveniently. And that's where we get Cassegrain, uh, Schmidt-Maxutov, Coday, 
all the different variations, and this allowed people to have photographs of the heavens. And you could buy these in atlases and, and in textbooks. And all of and people, of course, today routinely do this on their own. There are many, many amateurs. If you go onto any of the, of the photographic uh, databases on the web, you can see many people publish today their astronomical photographs all over the place, both electronically and in print. So, of course, the telescopes of this type began to grow in a larger and larger fashion. In 1948, the largest, then largest telescope in the world was a Cassegrain on Mount Palomar, which, of course, is the 200-inch telescope. The big eye, as they called it. The big eye. And this inspired a number of people to say, what would happen if you could put this in space? And one famous astronomer whose name I should remember, but shortly after 12, the name is eluding me. Maybe it's a senior (laughs) moment. Who knows? Uh, I remember he was at Princeton. I know he was at Princeton. Yes, yes. A very well-known person suggested do something similar to um, the 200-inch Palomar telescope. Put it in space. You could do marvelous things with it. A person who jumped on this idea and publicized it inside what was going to become NASA was the first American woman astronomer at NASA of note, Nancy Rowland, who had, I had the honor of meeting once. And I believe Nancy is going to have a telescope named, named after her very soon in space. Yes, she is. And I actually worked yes. when I was a consultant who got it. I, I worked with Nancy. She was brilliant. Oh, she was wonderful. Well, she she did something for me once that was wonderful. I When I started getting interested in the fact that maybe you could use a telescope like Hubble to view extrasolar planets, I was with Al Fenley at a talk she was giving in um, at the National Institute for Space Studies in upst- Uptown, New York, on 12th and Broadway. It's a small division of Goddard, NASA Goddard Institute of Space Studies. And she was talking about putting up an occulting disk, as I think would be done. I don't think they're going to do it right now. They won't do it with Webb, but they might do it with the Nancy Bowman Space Telescope. And I, I said, is there any possibility that we could do this with a celestial object? And she said, we could do it with the rim of the moon. Mm. So Al Fenley, Al Fenley and I were off and running, and we published a number of very early papers on the way on ways of using Hubble to image what was going to become Hubble to image extrasolar planets. And they learned how to do this without an occulter. And I believe of, the, of the, the many planets that have been discovered, a handful were actually imaged with Hubble. And of course, Hubble has an aperture of about 100 inches or 250 centimeters. I think it's 98 inches, actually. It is sort of limited, and right now it's getting kind of old. I know they've had to turn off a number of instruments. (laughs) It's already gone, doubled or tripled its expected lifespan. It It has become the icon of the astronomer. So right now, you know, I expect wonderful things with uh, James Webb. I really hope it works. There are so many ways it could fail. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, 
and they had something like 330 single point failure possibilities. And then the NASA team says they've been able to get around these. But I'm very happy that Elon Musk has dragons and he can always put a dragon on top of a uh, Falcon Heavy and send the crew out to the Lagrange point because some Lagrange point, if necessary. To say nothing of the Starship. Yeah. Oh, the this, this, this Starship could go out and have a major party around this thing, certainly. <laughs> By the way, the guy we we're trying to remember, Lyman Spitzer. Very good. Excellent. You, did you look him up? I, of course I looked him up. We're in the Internet age. Great. <laughs> Great. Fabulous. Fabulous. I never met Spitzer, but I know he was a genius. Yep. And I hope he got, I forget how long he lived, but I hope he got to see Hubble. Well, he certainly got to so see it, he got to see the orbiting astronomical observatory. And when I was at yeah. Goddard, I was commissioned to write a, a book on the on the evolution of the space telescope from <laughs> the first OAO to Copernicus to IUE, which was the International Ultraviolet Explorer. So that's why that name Spitzer is so embarrassing. Right. I forgot his name. So me too. You're into Okay. Okay. A little, a little, a little warning always helps. Okay, tell you what, okay, Greg, great. let's 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 uh, pause. My guest this morning is uh, Greg Matloff, and we're having a remarkable conversation about something really amazing and dear and near to my heart, which is the coming stunning astrophysical revolution that the Webb Space Telescope to be launched in less than a week now on Christmas Eve on that incredible hyperdimensional square. Do you think that factored into their decision to delay the launch to the 24th? Who knows? Anyway, we're going to talk about the revolution that Webb is going to introduce if it can unfold properly all by itself a million and a half miles away. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. And we shall return to a night of cosmic revolutions. done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable so if they kept everyone locked down over christmas they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at christmas of course you are and they know that you've got 65 million people in the uk you can't you can't please 65 million people going to each other's houses for christmas you can't do it there's not enough police officers so what they've done to try and keep some kind of you know appearance of power is give us those days so it's like i know you're going around each other's houses but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down us all doing it anyway and them openly showing their weakness which which they have they can't enforce it and and the police chief chief constables has said as much that it's unenforceable and so that's what i think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open all these theaters could open all these restaurants could open all these bars could open as long as they all opened because then it's unenforceable.
Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aching arms Body language clear Breathe my breaking heart Make my stand right here For action over hope Make my stand right here For action over hope And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. It is the 19th of December. About a week away less than Christmas. Certainly a week away less than Christmas Eve. Which NASA has now chosen to launch this incredibly overdue, it's over 10 years late, incredibly complicated incredibly hyper-expensive $9 billion spent to try to make this thing work all by itself over a million and a half miles away as it unfolds, unwinds, locks mirrors and mylar and struts and springs and gears and all kinds of complicated mechanical Rube Goldbergian uh, type devices into place to basically insulate it from the sun to hide it in the shadow so it will live just above absolute zero. Now, why do they want to keep it so cold, Greg? Let's kind of hit this one on the head, okay? Okay, I think the reason for that is you want to be able to not have too much thermal expansion going on. One thing with Hubble, of course, Hubble was orbiting the Earth. So on occasion, the temperature would go probably pretty close to absolute zero when it's on the night side, and probably well above 100 degrees Celsius when it's on the day side. So 
you know, you had to have certain, you, you had to allow a, a bit of time there on every orbit for there to be uh, thermal equilibrium, which must have been very interesting in some cases because when they did the deep field and the ultra deep field, <clears throat> looking very far out in the cosmos to count galaxies, what they had to do was uh, basically keep it focused on one, keep the telescope, keep Hubble focused on one tiny segment of the sky, something less than half a degree across for I think 90 days. So they probably had to time this very, very, very carefully. Now, where this telescope will be, it's going to be in a situation where it can be kept very, very cold all the time because it's not orbiting the Earth. It's in a gravitationally stable position between the Earth and the Sun. So as long as it's as long as you you have a sun shield, which it actually, does actually, I think it's on the opposite side. It's it's away from the Earth, uh, you know, farther from the Sun. Okay. About okay. a million. Okay. Uh, okay. It, it, it's at the L two point. You, <laughs> right. I think you're right. Not the L one point. I and and the really interesting part, the really, if I want to be very punny, cool part is. The one of the incredible complexities is they're unfolding unfolding this multiple layers of mylar, aluminized plastic, um, about the size of a tennis court that the telescope will hide behind, multi-layered, I think it's right. five layers. And of course, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, basically the transmission of heat in space is through electromagnetic radiation. You don't have convection, you don't have conduction. So by hiding it behind these five layers of super insulation, the size of a, again, a tennis court, imagine how big a tennis court is, and this all has to be unfolded, unwrinkled, all by computer, by control of little motors and stepping motors and, you know, struts and bars and springs. I mean, it, it's, 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 an, it's a nightmare. And to imagine they can actually do this successfully. So yeah, it's really good that Musk has a spacecraft capable of going and like we did with the shuttle and Hubble they can go out someday if they need to and literally have an astronaut help unfold the damn thing right it's a, it's a great backup incidentally before the break when you were mentioning OAO I almost cracked up because my first job at Colesman Instrument Corporation and then at Grumman in Boston in Long Island well, Queens, New York, and uh, Nassau County, New York, was as photometric engineer on OAO number two and number three. Oh my! I was one of the people in. I was one of the people in charge with calibrating the star trackers, and my two early first papers, both in applied optics, were on taking observatory measurements in the UBVRI system, where you put a filter in front of your telescope look at it to look at the stars at bright stars in only selected colors and how to come out with this information and derive um, star catalogs tailored to the spectral response of your particular uh, of, of the photoelectric device on your particular star tracker and I had a lot of fun with this <clears throat> one thing we used to do is we would go out and we had a Pritchard um, Photometer. Since you worked on this, you may have been, you may have seen the Pritchard's 
They were wonderful devices. They were what we would use to calibrate the star trackers. I would take it out at night. Sometimes we would point it at Vega, <laughs> uh, which is very, which was one of the cali- a-, a calibration star. Calibrate, and then we would have the device calibrated, and then we would put, we would use it with the star tracker. So it was a you know at the, pointed to the the simulated star. Um, that would that would basically be used to calibrate the star tracker and it was a lot of fun it was very very nice it was great experience and i almost was sued because i came out of queen's college and uh i knew all the you know we had had great hands-on experience in the optics labs and i go into one of the facilities at colesman and i'm busy setting up the experiment and the technicians are looking at me and they're getting red in the face and red in the face. And finally, one of them looked at me and said, it's a good thing it's your first job and you're 20 years old because you have to know something right now. Otherwise, you would have a union grievance. Engineers don't touch things. They mm. work with their minds. Technicians put things <laughs> together. You tell us. Oh, my God. Do. That so reminds me of my first experience on at CBS. Because I remember I was brought down as this young, not drive behind the years, 23-year-old to advise Walter Cronkite, Mr. Space, you know, we're going to the moon. And we're orbiting the moon on Christmas Eve, remember, Apollo 8. And I heard over the intercom, you know, uh, where's Mr. Hoagland? Cronkite needs him. So I rush out on the floor of the studio and I got the whole bunch of documents and whatever. And I got three different unions furious at me because... They were supposed to carry my paperwork. All I was supposed to do <laughs> is walk up to the desk. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, it was oh it was God. nuts. You know, yes, unions. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. Now let me ask you a question. Very interesting question, which probably the only two people on the planet listening to us tonight will know the answer to this. You and me. What made the orbiting astronomical observatory? which was a predecessor to Hubble. It was the first NASA space telescope. It was it had a 36-inch mirror, I believe, um, you know, Cassegrain telescope. Um, what made it unique in the history of telescopes, uh, either on Earth or in space? Totally unique. Okay, it, turned, it turns out that the Earth's atmosphere is only partially transmissive to electromagnetic radiation from the sun. It turns out that most, except for the visual band of the spectrum and some of the radio band, nothing passes through. So what people realized early on is we have to begin to look at things in different different ranges of the spectrum. And as I recall, decades later, the OAO was the first ultraviolet telescope other than the, there was one on, I believe, one of the stratoscope, one of the strato, I think it was called strato, stratospheric balloons in the yeah, late it, 1950s. It was called stratoscope and it was lifted up into the stratosphere about 120,000 feet by a huge yeah. Perkin Elmer polyethylene balloon right. on a stabilized and platform. This, right, this was a test. And it demonstrated that, my gosh, you can see a lot in the ultraviolet yep, if you can yep. get above the lower atmosphere. And this was the first instrument to do that. 
have been others. Actually, the, um, it turns out, Greg, it was not. The first group, the first American group to do astronomy in space that used an ultraviolet sensor, you know, this was film, and uh, optics, quartz optics, so it would pass ultraviolet light, was in fact the CIA in Project uh-huh. Corona. And the reason I know this is because they took bizarre pictures of the moon from Earth orbit, <laughs> and there's all kinds of astonishing detail, which of course is the ancient structures on the moon that I talk about a great deal, that the CIA knew they were there and they picked the ultraviolet because of the scattering properties of the glass versus the surface, but they were the first government institutions, a spy agency, to loft in that essence an ultraviolet telescope into space to do an astronomy observation. Interesting. And I can send you the pictures. They're amazing. Okay, I wasn't actually thinking in terms of the function of OAO. I was thinking of more like engineering. The, the engineering thing that made it so unique was it's the only telescope that I can remember. I've looked and looked and looked, either on Earth or in space, that literally was covered. The tube was covered with a layer of porcelain like a bathtub Mm. and it was for thermal control they literally put an orbiting bathtub into space with a camera and and lens system in it and and mirror and that was oao the the outer covering was porcelain see the things you learn when you write a book about nasa stuff it is that's fabulous (laughs) anyway so i did not know that well now you do and and, no, you, and you'll never be able to unlearn it, all right? So, <laughs> all right, so we've got these series of revolutions. Talk about big telescopes on Earth in history and the revolutions that each additional capability uh, ushered into in terms of the general paradigm of who the hell are we and what are we doing in this place? Okay, in about the year 1900, people were quite certain that there was only one galaxy, that was the universe, and it was centered on pretty close to where the sun is, and we were in the middle of this, and it reached out maybe 60 or 70,000 light years. And then along came the predecessor to Hubble, which is called the Mount Wilson Telescope, which has an aperture, it, it still exists, although it can't see very much in Los Angeles skies now, an aperture of of about 100 inches or 250 uh, centimeters. Yeah, it's called the the Hooker Telescope because the guy who paid for it was an industrialist in the trolley business, I think, named Hooker. Yeah, I always remembered if he was related to a Union general in the Civil War whose name was also Mm -hmm. Hooker. We have to check that. We'd have to check that. But anyway, could be the same family. It very possibly is. There was a very gifted observer, a guy who has a very famous name. His name, of course, is Hubble. And what he did is he used this telescope to begin looking at the spectra of some of the fuzzy objects that the Herschel family had discovered it before them, Messier, a century before that, had looked at. 
And they thought that these were just clouds in the sky. But all of a sudden, they realized, as they looked at the Doppler shift, they looked at the fact that the, you know, spectral lines are signatures of various elements. But their position in the spectra can change if something's moving away from us. They were able to demonstrate that these fuzzy objects were moving away. Yeah, the familiar Doppler, so-called Doppler shift. Doppler effect. (laughs) And what happened is the far, as he got further and further out, they were moving faster. So Hubble concluded in the 1920s that the universe was expanding. And this initially freaked out Albert Einstein, because Albert Einstein, who was in many ways a follower of Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, people say Albert Einstein was an atheist physicist. That's nonsense. He was not an atheist. What he believed is that consciousness, that deity, in fact, was combined with the universe. They were the same thing. And he figured that the universe, therefore, you're looking at the body of God. It's stable. And general relativity initially did not, he did not believe that the universe could be expanding. And it turned out that the guy, there was a Roman Catholic priest at the Vatican Observatory. Oh, his name, Lamatre. Lamatre and also a Jewish guy named Friedman, who did this independently, who demonstrated that relativity, general relativity, for a perfectly stable universe would not work. It would, it would, it would be on the knife edge. You either have to have a contraction... More like a razor blade. <laughs> a razor blade. <laughs> so what Einstein did is he threw in a fudge factor called the cosmological constant, thinking he didn't like doing this because this was his perfect work. And of course, the cosmological constant has come back to us today to explain the fact that the universe's expansion seems to be speeding up. So it's amazing how these ideas work and develop. And then another guy who did something, and this was a very interesting telescope, less, less than a decade after this, um, a Percival Lowell had been a, he came from a railroad family in the U.S., and he decided to spend his life building a private observatory at Flagstaff, Arizona, and using this observatory to map the canals of Mars, which you now know today were illusory. But that's still okay, because he had the telescope, he had the reputation, and people learned around 1910, 1920, that there were slight perturbations to the orbit of Neptune. And they hypothesized there would be planet X out there. So Lowell hired a bright young guy who only had a bachelor's degree. From Kansas, Dorothy. (laughs) And he was right exactly from Kansas. He was a farm kid. Yep. And but he was one of those who built his own six-inch reflecting telescope. Yeah, in the farm, and he comes in, Clyde Tombaugh, and using a blink comparator. When you basically on on this telescope, you take I, I used the blink comparator when I in my one year at Wesleyan in 1969, late 69 through 70. It's a d- wonderful device, 
One, you take two pictures a day apart of the same segment of the sky. One is a photographic positive, one's a photographic negative. <clears throat> then you look at them together at the same time. You adjust the lights so the light is the same for both of them. And if there is a streak, something's moving. And he did this with extreme accuracy, and he discovered the dwarf planet Pluto. Of course, we didn't know it was a dwarf planet then. It was devices like Hubble and, and the very large um, terrestrial telescopes, which have originated about the time that Hubble did, that demonstrated that what we thought was a single object, Pluto, was really two, Pluto and its moon, Chiron, and Pluto is actually an object which is smaller, considerably smaller than our moon. <clears throat> but because of the second object orbiting at Chiron, we know that it is. Uh, it appeared to be one Earth-sized object to people like the Tombaugh and other people who checked him out. So this has been remarkable. And then... Along comes the use of Hubble and these other and these these other large terrestrial telescopes, and um, people start wondering about can we actually detect the planets circling other stars? <laughs> and a person, two people, who some people say they wasted their lives. It's a sad story. Peter van der Kamp and Sarah Lippincott, the astronomers at Sproul observatory in Swarthmore, uh, Pennsylvania, Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, in the Appalachian Mountains. And what they did was they spent 30 years looking at the second nearest star, Barnard Star, as it streaks across the sky. It's the fastest moving, highest proper motion star in the, in the cosmos. It's a, little, it's a little red dwarf, about one-tenth the mass of the sun, and maybe right. one in thousands right. its brightness. And they figured if it had, if there was a planet there, a large planet, it might cause a little wiggle. And lo, lo, lo and behold, they discovered the wiggle. And they published their data. And then other people, years later, they figured, of course, they had to validate this. So... They, they didn't have an observing sequence like that at any one institution. They said, let's combine plates from Wesleyan, where I had been, from out from, uh, oh, the Yale Observatory in New Haven, from probably five or six other institutions. This was done by Gatewood, Gatewood and Icorn, one of whom was in Florida, one I think in Georgia. And they found no planet. And they went back and they found what had happened is in the middle of the observation run by, by Sarah and Peter, the telescope had been renovated and the lens had been put in, the, the primary lens had been put in slightly differently. And this, of course, caused the apparent effect. And of course, it must have been heartbreaking, but what it did is it turned on other people. And... In um, 1992, I had the opportunity of predicting what was going to happen. But at that point, because of the Apollo layoffs and everything that followed it, I was working as a purely adjunct professor. I wasn't full-time anywhere. I didn't have tenure. And I was consulting. 
And as such, I wasn't going to challenge the establishment. I had published with Gene the Starflight Handbook, and I get a call. Phone calls, and somebody says, well, hello, this is Greg Matloff. And I said, yep, I would like you to help me on a, as a consultant, an unpaid consultant on a science fiction novel. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, yeah, but... I have to know your name. And he said, my name is Buzz Aldrin. Oh, my God. And I said, <laughs> I said, I said wait a minute. You know, <laughs> a lot of people can say that. And they may, and I, may not be true. I need proof. He said, here is a phone number. Call this phone number. It's going to go, you're going to go through an appropriate switchboard. They will connect with me. It was Buzz. Wow. And Buzz is an amazing person. When I was doing this work, what he really wanted me to do, this was for a book he did with John Barnes called Encounter with Tiber. <clears throat> he liked the work I had done on solar sail starships, photonic starships, and he wanted me to design two. So, and it was amazing to be with Buzz because we can met I, him. Can I he, ask you an embarrassing question? Yeah. Why didn't he want to pay you? I think this is because he didn't pay any of his consultants. Hmm. He figured the celebrity would be enough. He did take us out to eat, though. <laughs> he, and I, this is one thing I really... This is, I learned the power of celebrity in this society. He took me and my wife. He was with his second wife, Lois, at the time. Right. They took us out to the Plaza, to the Plaza Hotel, major hotel in New York. We go into the Palm Room. And other people start pointing at him. <laughs> and he gets upset. He said, he looks at a waiter who says, you see that room over there? I want that opened for me and my guests. And by the way, my name is Buzz Aldrin. You never saw people move that quickly <laughs> to get a table ready. <laughs> it was remarkable. It took about 40 seconds. I wish I had been timing it. Anyway, after I... Develop, after I went through the analysis of his two of the two ships that they needed, he um, said, "Okay, I know that you got your PhD doing planetary atmospheres. I need John and I need in this book. We have to have a Jupiter-like planet at one astronomical unit at Earth's distance from a sun-like star. In this case, Alpha Centauri A. Do you do you think?" the atmosphere will be stable for billions of years. <laughs> and I said, well, the planetologists, the orthodox planetologists... I'll I tell you what, that. hold it there. This is a great tease. My guest this morning is Dr. Greg Matloff. You just found out first here <clears throat> that Buzz Aldrin hired him to be a technical consultant to his fictional novel after he came back from the moon called Encounter with Tiber. Gosh, have I got all kinds of questions. It's kind of like when I got the phone call from uh, Cronkite's folks and they said, we'd like to help you help us go to the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll return to Greg's fascinating story about the technical background for the star system in Buzz Aldrin's encounter with Tiber when we return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.